Well, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Glad to be back with you. We're going to do some uh, globetrotting uh, today. My guest, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, is executive editor and Washington bureau chief for EW10 News. He's a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Uh, Matthew has had uh, a great deal of time, a very prolific writer, 50 books, uh, more than 50 books, um, including the first English language biography of Pope Francis. He's also done the Encyclopedia of uh, Catholic History. And you can follow him on Twitter at Matt, that's two T's, Matt Bunsen, B-U-N-S-O-N. Good to have you here again, Matthew. Very good to be with you, and uh, greetings again from Rome. So, what time is it right now? About uh, 11 o'clock? 11 o'clock, yes it is. Yeah, well, thank you for for joining us at this late hour. (laughs) Oh, always happy to be here any time of the day or night. (laughs) Thanks. we are still in the uh, aftermath of Monday's uh, disclosure that the U.S. Supreme Court appears to be on the verge of declaring that there is no constitutional right uh, to abortion. And there's been a remarkable uh, amount of outrage shown. Uh, the President of the United States, in particular, has shown no disgust at the fact that the uh, this uh, memo or this this opinion was leaked, violating uh, the deepest uh, confidentiality uh, that's associated with the court. Instead, he's fashioning um, absurd little arguments to justify his personal support for abortion. Uh, and I understand that's actually gotten some attention outside the United States. Uh, tell me about this Spanish bishop. Well, that's right. Uh, it, it is striking to me that uh, one of the strongest and most vocal of the voices uh, relating to uh, everything that's been going on with uh, President Biden uh, should actually be coming from outside of the United States, as we noted. And uh, what we're really talking about is uh, a bishop from Spain who is essentially saying that uh, Joe Biden is creating his own religion. And I, I find it uh, telling in a way that it takes a, a bishop from outside of the United States yeah. uh, to make this type of a point. Yep. Uh, I, I would personally love to see many more American bishops uh, weighing in like this. As it is, uh, Bishop Jose Ignacio Munilla uh, Aguirre of Ojuela um, Alicante in Spain um, said that. Uh, showing a picture of President Biden on Twitter, said that the president's statement that Roe says what all basic mainstream religions have historically concluded, that the existence of a human life and being is a question. Uh, he said essentially that uh, we are fashioning, or he is, uh, a religion to suit ourselves. And, and that's a really interesting take on it, because I think we are seeing with, with President Biden, as we have seen with other pro-abortion Catholic politicians and efforts uh, either to overgeneralize, as we see here, and then Biden has done that, but Biden also tries to drag in Thomas Aquinas at one point in some of his uh, public statements, uh, as has Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Pelosi also went so far as to try to, to involve uh, St. Augustine on when exactly life begins. So these are very uh, troubling statements uh, 
one of many that Biden has said over the last few days. Yeah. And again, this is this actually shows how theologically illiterate they are. Uh, people know exactly why St. Thomas Aquinas uh, had the opinion about uh, um, the quickening that he did. Uh, it was a distorted science of the day, which was common. Um, and we, in doing the work of theology, we go back as we discover what the tradition of the church is. Uh, we distinguish what the authentic tradition of the church is from uh, the way it's propped up uh, by various, uh, you know, cultural assumptions of the day. And uh, I just am amazed that nobody corrects uh, her on this or the vice or the president. Uh, Archbishop uh, Aquila has weighed in, though, uh, on the Germans, so we know he's been at least speaking out publicly on this uh, <laughs> issue of fidelity to what the Church teaches. So tell me about what he's doing. Yeah, uh, well, Archbishop Aquila, uh, of course, of Denver, uh, was one of the key voices in the bishop's letter, the open letter that was sent by what is now over a hundred bishops and cardinals from around the world uh, to the Germans, uh, asking them uh, to end the synodal path that, that, that seems like you and I have been talking about now for 20 years. Yeah. Um, there was a response uh, from the head of the German bishops' conference, uh, Bishop Gerald Bateson of Wimborg, uh, who essentially dismissed uh, this open letter from a very significant number of bishops around the world, including uh, several cardinals, including Cardinal George Pell, Cardinal Wen of Hong Kong, uh, Cardinal Camilo Rini of uh, Italy, as well as uh, a lot of very prominent names, including Archbishop Aquila. So Archbishop Aquila has written a new letter uh, to Bishop Bateson, reiterating uh, not just what the bishops have said in this open letter, but really repudiating to point by point uh, the effort on the part of Bishop Bateson uh, to defend what they're doing at the synodal path. And I think Bishop Aquila makes a couple of important points. There. The first is that, as he says, the synodal path does not simply address, quote, structural concerns. It challenges, he writes, and in some instances actually repudiates the deposit of faith. And as he notes, and you and I talk about this, mm -hmm. documents of the synodal path it cannot be read in any other way than as raising the most serious questions about the nature and binding authority of divine revelation, the nature and efficacy of the sacraments, and the truth of Catholic teaching on human love and sexuality. I mean, that's, uh, in that one sentence, I think, uh, Archbishop Aquila really encapsulates so many of the problems uh, that exist uh, in what we're seeing coming out of this synodal path in Germany. Yeah. Um, I will just I, yeah. We'll just see how this plays out. I, I just don't. I I, I try to imagine how, what the German bishops are saying uh, to themselves. I spoke to uh, a young woman uh, from Germany last week off the air. Uh, we weren't able to do anything on the air, but uh, you know she's pointed out that there are many Catholics in Germany concerned about this synodal path, and um, and. She she doesn't know herself. How does this play out uh, down the road? Because the German bishops have chosen, they're basically on a suicide uh, course when it comes to Catholic teaching. They're they're gonna they have a collision ahead of them. Uh, 
and something's going to have to give, and I'm quite certain it's not going to be the Holy See. Um, I, I'd be shocked beyond belief. Uh, I, I, I question my own sanity. So the the I, I asked her, "Do you know how, you know, how how they're imagining this can work out? You know, directly contradicting and defying Catholic teaching here." And she actually, no. Apparently, that's not a big topic of conversation in Germany itself. So, I just don't know what they're thinking. Right. Well, I think uh, there are two things at work uh, that uh, we're seeing more and more uh, within German Catholicism. The first is, um, and what's troubling, which is the uh, general level of apathy. Uh, yeah. That uh, when I talk to a lot of German Catholics, faithful German Catholics, I think one of the things that worries us. Uh, in all of this is uh, that uh, many Catholics are essentially checked out on this. Yeah. <laughs> you have in the Synodal Path uh, a group of, of people with a very clearly pre-established, predetermined outcome, uh, and they're, they're simply unfolding what they had planned to do all along. Rather than having a, an authentic form of dialogue, uh, they're about to issue and have issued essentially pre-prepared documents. The second aspect, though, that I think is worth looking at is that you do have faithful, many faithful Catholics, and a depressingly small number of faithful bishops uh, who are not giving up on this. And we're seeing the petitions that have come about uh, signed by these uh, faithful German Catholics, and they're really trying to warn Catholics across the globe uh, that it's not going to end in Germany, that uh, really the end game of this is to spread this around the world, again, as you and I have talked on a number of occasions, but the other is to try to influence very directly uh, the official work of the Synod of Bishops that is scheduled to take place in October of next year uh, in Rome. And when you look at the statements that are being made and have been made by individuals like Cardinal Reinhard Marx, Bishop Batesinger, we just talked about, the, the German speaker, Cardinal Jean-Claude Ulrich, who's a relator general for the Synod of Bishops, I think there's really a worry in Germany, but also beyond, uh, what this could try to do or try to metastasize into uh, the Synod of the Bishops next year, which is one of the reasons why the, uh, the, the gathering of the bishops in this open letter uh, that uh, Archbishop Aquila is uh, a key figure in. I think that it's why they have a feeling and sense of urgency in getting these letters out. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's wise. Uh, they should... This correction uh, can't come too soon, and uh, you want you hope that the German bishops have thought about it, uh, an exit uh, ramp. Um, uh, I see that. Uh, I, I have the impression increasingly that they don't. No, I know. Uh, <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been and, looking and around. <laughs> yeah, we're still looking. Uh, we're still driving. I'm glad they helped them. Right. Yeah, get him off the autobahn. When when you look at uh, the, the comments from Bishop Bateson, for example, and reply to this open letter, it's not contempt, but it's um, really dismissive. Yeah, and, it's just... uh, I, I think I think Archbishop Aquila said it pretty well when uh, he thanked um, Bishop Bateson for his response. Uh, in an April 14th letter, but uh, Archbishop Akola said that he found it in German on the Internet. <laughs> I mean, that, that's <laughs> the, the, the sense of great importance that Bishop Bateson felt in, in 
publishing was far and wide for the world to see. Yeah. Well, there's a super a, a superciliousness that you see with some of these uh, high-level churchmen. Uh, again, the, uh, the young woman that I was speaking to from Germany is, is, said that this is there's there's no sense um, that uh, these men show no evidence. She's speaking particularly of Cardinal Marx. There's no sense that uh, he could be wrong. There's a simple assumption that he must be right. Uh, and he exercises uh, tremendous personal authority uh, there. Uh, I want to come uh, back. Uh, the, uh, the, the cardinal who's talked about uh, unraveling church teaching on, on sexuality, in particular homosexuality. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, times. Uh, Matthew Holderstead will come back. I want to talk. I understand that uh, the Japanese prime minister has met with Pope Francis and uh, has expressed real concerns about China uh, and its actions in the South China Sea and the human rights situation in Hong Kong. Let's go there in just a moment. Good afternoon. I'm Al Crestor. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We are taking a look at uh, some of the stories from around the world that directly uh, affect uh, Catholics. Japan's Prime Minister, uh, Fumio Kishida, met with Pope Francis on Wednesday and told Vatican officials of his deep concern about China's actions in the South China Sea and the human rights situation in Hong Kong and uh, Jiang. What uh, what do you know about this, uh, Matthew? Yes, well, the, uh, um, any meeting between the Japanese Prime Minister and Pope Francis is going to be an important one, given uh, the, the concerns that we all have that have been slightly overshadowed, of course, by the recent events in Ukraine and the ongoing war there that yeah. actually does connect all of this together. Uh, given uh, Pope Francis's commitment to... Uh, human rights, but also to uh, ending nuclear proliferation. And Japan, I think, is uh, uniquely positioned as uh, the only country in the world to have been actually attacked with nuclear weapons or to have suffered a nuclear blast. Right. Uh, we saw the bottom end of World War II. So the, the visit of the, the Japanese prime minister then came at uh, a time where Profanti has already said that uh, we are essentially in World War III. And when you're looking at uh, the, the problems that are emerging, not just in Eastern Europe with Ukraine and Russia, but now also the threats that China represents in the South China Sea with its uh, recent pact with the Solomon Islands, uh, I think there's a great concern about not just nuclear proliferation, but just another outright war across the Pacific. Uh, China has continued to express uh, desire for the reacquisition of it to take over Taiwan. Uh, and uh, all of those, I think, are uppermost in the mind of the Japanese at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they, this concern, again, about human rights is something that uh, we certainly need allies uh, in Asia to uh, stand uh, with us here. And the, the Holy Father, uh, we still, you know, I, I mean, he's got to be concerned about this. Uh, we still don't know what this um, relationship that he has with China is all about. We don't know what mm-hmm. uh, That's right. What this is. And so he's, he's got to be concerned about what's going on in Hong Kong. And um, 
Let me, let me ask you this. Uh, this is back to go to Europe. Uh, the European Parliament uh, spoke out in favor of a persecution report that was actually criticized by the Catholic Church. Apparently, the, the European Parliament not recognizing uh, religious liberty as a first order liberty or first order right, and uh, thereby minimizing. Uh, the suffering that uh, many Christians are undergoing in the Middle East and uh, mm-hmm. in Africa. Try to untangle this for me. What, why would they be uh, talking down the persecution of religious minorities? Well, it's, it's uh, in, in many ways even worse than that, uh, because... Essentially what happened, as I understand it, uh, this was a fairly good report by every measure uh, that was then subsequently rewritten. Massive changes were made to the text uh, by members of the group that actually is in charge of putting this together, the, the, the lawmaking body there for the, the EU. And the result was twofold. On, on the one hand, as we note, it essentially eradicated uh, most references uh, to the persecution of minorities on the grounds of belief or religion. Uh, so that means that the horrendous persecution of Christians across the Middle East and in Africa and elsewhere uh, was removed from the text, and apparently all but just one reference to the Christian persecutions that are taking place around the globe, that was also deleted. Uh, however, at the same time, as it comes as no surprise, that once you start doing that, uh, the report then began emphasizing uh, the worry and concern and the protections that are needed for atheists, for secular and humanists' belief, uh, essentially seeing what many people in the United States are trying to do, and that is to end any idea of Christian persecution and instead elevating the so-called protected classes, such as atheists and others, uh, at the expense of, the other, of all other religious groups. So this is a triumph in many ways of uh, secular humanism, of what I really think is a very anti-Christian, but also anti-religion uh, idea, the sort of ideology that we're seeing uh, in most of the major governmental institutions coming out of the EU, uh, and increasingly even here in the United States. Yeah, and, and there's also uh, an ongoing concern about the rights of LGBTQ people, and in as much as many Christian bodies, of course, uh, don't see, uh, they don't ground, they have all due respect for people uh who are considered LGBTQ, but they're not themselves champions of those behaviors. Uh, So consequently, because we don't champion the behaviors of LGBTQ people, um, our rights are not to be regarded uh, as something the the secular world wants to defend. We're not on, we're not playing their game. We're not, uh, we're not right. following their agenda. Well, and, and, and you're absolutely right. And so we can even add to that uh, that the, the basic mindset that undergirds much of the report like this 
uh, is that uh, the religious believers, that those who are people of belief, people of faith, in particular Christians, uh, are the very ones uh, who are most likely to be accused in a report like this of being responsible yeah. uh, for oppression and persecution of, again, the sort of protected classes, as, as you noted, it's, it's LGBTIQ people, as they describe it, uh, they describe women and girls, uh, that uh, be sort of uh, what they call the misuse and instrumentalization of belief or religion to impose discriminatory policies, laws, uh, and criminal laws. Uh, and, of course, as you read through this report, which I have, it, it talks about sexual and reproductive rights. Uh, it assumes that abortion is a, a natural right. It's uh, one of those rights that cannot be taken away. Uh, and, of course, uh, the religious bodies are the ones who are most likely to uh, be those that would want to uh, oppose abortion. Yeah. Or who raise serious questions about where we're headed uh, with the LGBTIQ or gender ideology, as Pope Francis calls it. So there is a, a tension within this report uh, and an absolute imbalance that I think is, is weighted uh, clearly against those people of belief, people of faith. And I'm, I'm very concerned about where this is going to go next, not to mention the fact uh, that the religious freedom envoy of the EU uh, is a place that has been vacant, I think, since September of 2021. Uh, and that was a role that was really deemed very important for protecting uh, the rights of religious minorities around the world. Gee. Okay. Well, that's... That's that's terrible. I mean, the minimizing of the importance of this liberty, which, of course, for Americans, it's, you know, it's part of our, our First Amendment. It's a, it's a priority. I did want to ask you about Pope Francis's health. You're there in Rome. Uh, is yeah. there any reliable information about how well he's doing after this uh, colon surgery? Well, the... Uh the, the sight of uh, his uh, general audience the other day was really quite jarring. Uh, uh, the image of Pope Francis really struggling to walk at the end of the general audience, and, and there are videos of this uh, all over. Uh, it, it was very heartbreaking. We've been following Pope Francis from the very night of his election, and uh, we know that the, the health problems that he's had, the sciatica problem, and now he's really suffering from a ligament tear, apparently, in his knee. So the jarring image of him at the general audience was followed uh, the very next day by an even more jarring image of Pope Francis entering uh, the Paul VI Hall, the aula in the Vatican, in a wheelchair. Mm, And it was the first time that he'd been seen in a wheelchair since having his colon surgery last July. Uh, which it was expected that he would be in a wheelchair after that. Uh, in this case, however, um, this is attributed to the torn ligament that uh, he's supposed to be. I see. Okay. Uh, but, okay. But it really came as something of a surprise to a lot of people. I, I, was mis- I misunderstood. Um, I, I thought the colon surgery was recent, um, but uh, this is the first time he's been in a wheelchair since that colon surgery, which was, was in July of 2021. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And again, it, it's uh, uh, there's no reason to believe that this is not uh, caused by a, a very painful torn ligament. He's supposed yeah. to be receiving uh, 
treatment for it, some sort of a series of injections which would be standard for this. Uh, but it has also had the effect, uh, sort of bluntly, of, of sparking a lot of rumor and concern about yeah. yeah. health. But it's also raised some important questions that I think are fair uh, to whether or not some of these upcoming paper trips are actually going to be possible for him. Uh, given the, the apparent limitations he has getting around. When he went to Malta at the start of April, uh, it was clear that he was really struggling to walk, and they designed uh, the logistics of his visit there uh, so that he wouldn't have to be taking stairs and other things. Uh, he has some potentially grueling trips coming up, including Lebanon. Uh, he's hoping to be able to go to uh, South Sudan or Africa, uh, and even the possible trip to Kazakhstan. Uh, then there are the persistent uh, efforts on the part of Pope Francis uh, to extend an invitation to fly to Moscow uh, to meet with Vladimir Putin and mm-hmm. ending uh, the, the Ukraine war. So we'll just have to see. Uh, yeah. Again, um, we're certainly praying for Pope Francis. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, you know, there. Uh, speaking of uh, Putin, uh, we've got about sixty seconds here. There's no hint, though, that he's he's going to be able to that the Holy Father is going to be able to play the part of an honest broker at this point. Is there? I don't think so. Um, the the controversies that are surrounding the uh, Orthodox situation, uh, right. the Orthodox Patriarchate of Moscow, I think, is complicating things, not just from within the Orthodox world itself, but uh, Catholic Orthodox dialogue, the, the great worries that uh, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church has about uh, Russian plans there. All of these coming together, I think, are posing some real obstacles to the Holy Father's yeah. involvement. Yeah, that makes sense. Matthew, thanks so much. Uh, when are you coming back from Rome? <laughs> uh, hopefully next week. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk then. Thanks. All right. God bless. Take care. Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Uh, in Rome. I'm Al Cresta.